0: Well, it's Christmas, and as the song says, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But for many of us, it doesn't feel that way. In fact, for a lot of people, this season is a season of sadness. It's a a time where they feel acutely a sense of regret. It's a time where they sense acutely the heaviness of things that are going on on in their lives. And for a lot of us, the Christmas season is a time of, of sadness rather than a time of joy. And, you know, most of the songs we sing don't really acknowledge that fact, but there is a Christmas song that's one of my favorites that, uh, that really acknowledges the fact of the brokenness of the world. My mic is going in and out, sorry. Uh, this Christmas carol is called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And it's uh, written by a Henry uh, Wadsworth Longfellow. It was a poem that was turned into a Christmas carol. And the thing about it is it's actually a pretty gritty uh, carol. It was written when uh, it was, he was going through a very dark time in his life, so he, uh, his wife, had a year previous, had just passed away in a house fire, and she literally died in his arms. A year later, he went to go visit his son in the hospital, and his son, who had been fighting in the Civil War, this was written way back in the 1800s, his son, who was uh, fighting in the Civil War, was wounded and was almost paralyzed. And so Longfellow goes back to his home, and he's sitting there in the house alone, and it's Christmas morning, and he hears the bells on Christmas Day, and he pins these words. He says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And so here he said he's listening to the bells, and and they're almost mocking the sense of sorrow that he feels in his life. And what he's doing here is he's acknowledging something that the Bible knows. He's acknowledging something that is clear to the authors of Scripture, and that is that the world we live in is a world that is deeply wounded and broken. And so often in Christmas, uh, at Christmas time, we have this sort of hallmark uh, you know, spirit of the season, but we need to acknowledge the truth of the world's brokenness. I mean, this is what Christmas is also about. Uh, Timothy Keller, he has this great quote. It's on your bulletin if you want to look at it. He says, On the whole, we are in denial about the depth of magnitude and magnitude of our discontent. The artists and thinkers who talk about it most poignantly are seen as morbid outliers, But actually, they are prophetic voices. It usually takes years to break through and dispel the denial in order to see the magnitude and dimension of our dissatisfaction in life. And so here's a Longfellow in this Christmas carol acknowledging his discontent with the world. And maybe you're sitting here this morning in your seat thinking about your own sadness and the own weight of your brokenheartedness, acknowledging the weight of the brokenness of the world. And what Isaiah says here in Isaiah 61 is that, A, the world that we live in is broken, but the good news of Christ's coming is that the Messiah has come to mend our brokenness. The world that we live in is broken by sin. All the brokenheartedness and all the sadness is here because of sin, the curse of sin on our world. And the good news of the Messiah is that he's come not only to pardon us of sin and to take us to heaven, He's come to heal us of the effects of sin. He's come to mend our brokenness. He's come to reverse the curse that is in our world. One of the best pictures of this is in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, many of you have read the book, and, and Lewis has this great picture of what's going on in the world, and, and it's the world of Narnia. And so the world of Narnia is under this eternal winter, winter isn't it? And the children, they go into this world, and it's, it's white and it's snowy, but they begin to realize that there's something wrong there. And they learn that it's a world under the curse of the white witch. It's a world in which it's always winter, but never Christmas. And this is our world, and for many of us, this is our lives. We look, and we, it's a beautiful world, but it's also deeply broken. It's a world of wonder and delight, but it's also a world of deep sadness and woundedness. And again, what Messiah says, is he, or what Isaiah says, is that the Messiah has come not only to forgive our sins, but to heal the effects of the curse. And this is really good news, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, this is a famous passage about the Messiah, and it's the passage that Jesus reads the very first time that he speaks publicly in the world. And so in Luke chapter 4, after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the temple, and the very first words that Jesus speaks are the words of Isaiah 61. And this is really important because, you know, if you're a politician or if you're a leader, uh, you know, your first speech is the most important, is it? isn't it? It's the speech where you lay out your agenda. It's the speech where you tell people, this, you know, this is why I'm here, this is what I'm about, this is what I want to do. You crystallize your agenda. And Isaiah 61 crystallizes the agenda of the Messiah. Isaiah 61, Jesus is telling us, this is why I came. This is what I'm about. If you want to boil it down, this is my main work in the world. And what is it? We're going to see he's here to mend our brokenness, to heal the effects of sin. He wants to mend the fabric of the world. He wants to mend the fabric of our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is simply go through Isaiah 61, and I want to see uh, this work that the Messiah does uh, in our lives, and I want us to experience the good news. This is really good news, and I want it to hit us this morning. So we're simply going to go through, and I want us to see three things. Number one, we're going to look first at the brokenness of the world, and then secondly, we're going to see how the Messiah is going to mend it. So we're going to look at the brokenness of our world, and then we're going to look at the way the Messiah mends our brokenness. And so Isaiah 61, I want, us, I want you first to notice the words that Isaiah uses to describe the effects of sin. Notice the first word that he uses is the word poor or poverty. Verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so one of the effects of sin in our world and of sin in our lives is poverty. It's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation. I'm not saying that if you are poor this morning, it's because you've sinned. What I'm saying is that God has created a world where people don't go hungry. God has created a world where there is economic equity. And wherever you see poverty, this is a symptom or an effect of sin in the world. Sin enters in and there's oppression and there's, and there's greed and there's all sorts of things that lead to our poverty. And poverty is not just economic uh, inequality, it's not just having not enough stuff. Uh, there's a, a, a missionary that we support in our church, his name is John luc he's a French, French man, he's a missionary down in Mexico City and he's working in the urban slums there in Mexico City, working to alleviate poverty. And he came here one time, and he gave a little talk, and one of the things he said is, he said, listen, he says, what do you think is the main problem of these poor people there in the urban slums? He said, it's not necessarily lack of material things. He says, when you go in there, you find that there's a hopelessness that is part of their poverty, probably the main part of their poverty, uh, Brian Bryant Myers describes poverty this way. He says poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all of its meaningness. And so, poverty is a, it's a result of a relational breakdown, and it's not just material poverty. There's hopelessness. Uh, you know, Jesus talks about being poor in spirit. And so one of the first effects of sin that Isaiah mentions here is the poor. Notice he also goes on and he says, The Messiah has come to bind up the brokenhearted. And so brokenhearted is another word that he uses to describe the effects of sin in our lives. So sin not only brings material inequality, but it also brings emotional pain. The pastors here at this church, the pastors probably all around the city, that if you're a helping professional, a counselor, weekly you hear the stories that come out of a broken heart. Think of all the ways that sin leads to broken heartedness. And so there's a wife whose husband has left her with the children alone because he wants to pursue another relationship, leaving the wife and the children broken hearted. There's a husband who's, who knows that he's messed up. He knows that he's done wrong, and his wife is sick of it. And so she leaves, and he's realized his folly, but it's too late. He's left alone, and he's brokenhearted. There's the parents who look at their children who are wayward, children that are, are involved in lives that are destroying themselves. And they watch their children at a, at a distance bro- brokenhearted. There are the children that are brokenhearted because of abuse from parents. There are children that live, that live wounded emotionally because of the abuse they receive from their father figures or mother figures. I remember watching a documentary of Amy Winehouse, and some of you may know who she is, but she's a, one of these pop musicians who just burned out in an early age and died at the age of 25. And in this documentary, it, it, there's this little confession she makes at the very beginning of her downward spiral. She talks about her dad. And she said, you know, my dad was there, but he wasn't there. And that was all that I needed. And so this wounded girl with a broken heart spirals downward until she finally self-destructs. And this is a sad effect of, the, of sin in our world. Broken hearts. Oh, the tremendous pain that sin brings into the world. How many broken hearts are there as, because of sin? transgression. And so Isaiah talks about not only the poor, but also the brokenhearted. Another word that Isaiah used to, to describe the effects of sin in the world is the word captive, captivity. He says, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound. And there are many who are bound in our world. You know, one of the characteristics of sin is that what it does is it takes a person captive. And sin captivates our lives, doesn't it? I mean, it's, an, it's, so, uh, it's so attractive, it looks so pleasurable, it's so enticing, and so we get involved in sinful practices. And we do various sins, but after a while, the sin begins to do us. And the things that we did freely, what we freely chose, soon begin to enslave our lives. And there are many of us who find ourselves captive to our own worst selves. We're captive to our anger, maybe. Where we wish we didn't blow up, we, we wish we didn't explode and words flying like weapons, but we just can't seem to stop. Or we're, we're captives to our greed. We spend and we spend and we go deeper and deeper in debt. And we can't seem to curb that impulse. Or we're captive to our lust. We're making self-destructive choices because we can't control that lust, that sexual desire. And so the Bible says that sin is something bigger than ourselves. It's not only something that we do, but it also is something that holds us captive Sin has the power to hold you in its grip. And there are many of us who are bound by the chains of habit and sin. You know, so often we talk about tragic flaws. You know, and there are those tragic flaws out there, those flaws, those sins in your life that threaten to destroy your life. And you hear stories that are brought down by various sin. Well, what is a tragic flaw? It's something that gets, it's a sin that grabs a hold of us and we can't get out of it. We can't say no to it and it ends up destroying us. And we're captives. And so Isaiah says here's another effect of sin. It it keeps people captive, it keeps people bound by habit. They can't get out. Well, notice another word that Isaiah uses to describe the effects of sin. He says, sin is ashes. He came to give us beauty for ashes. And so this is another uh, effect, a destructive effect of sin in our world. Ashes. What are ashes? Ashes are the disintegration of something that used to be alive and beautiful. You know, you you look at ashes and and, and ashes are, are, they're there, but they used to be something else. They used to be something alive and solid, but uh, it's, you know, the fire has decomposed that which held the thing together. And again, this is tragic. I remember when I was uh, younger, about 15 years ago, my grandma's house burned to the ground. They're in southern Oregon, her house burned. And uh, they had a fireplace, you know, and and there in Oregon, the weather is dry, very unlike Batesville, Arkansas, where it's humid, but very dry weather. Sparks came up, landed on the roof, their house burned down. Thankfully, both of my grandparents and their dog got out alive. In fact, the dog saved their life, which is a whole other story which is a good advertisement for dogs, right? Thank God for dogs. They got, got out alive, but their house was just gone. A house that they had lived in for roughly 20 years. A house that our family had vacations in and spent Christmases together in. And I remember uh, after the, it happened, they drove me to the site where the house had burned. And all that was there was, was ashes. Just black, charred rubble of what used to be the house and it was sad and it was tragic not so much because of the ashes but because the reminder of what it used to be and so often this is what sin does there people have incredible potential we are image of God we are creative and beautiful but sin twists and decimates our lives until we are we are only a fraction of what we could could have been you know, you go to Skid Row and, and, uh, in, in Los Angeles there, and you will see people that have li- lives that have burned out. And you think, well, these are just mentally ill, really broken people. Well, yes, but, you know, many of them used to be medical doctors. Many of them used to be lawyers. Many of them used to have families. And what you see, it's so tragic because it's ashes. You see them, but you also see the reminder of what could, been lo- what could have been lost, potential. A Francis Spooford, uh, he's, he's a British author, and uh, he writes novels mostly, but he's also a Christian, and he wrote a book about the Christian faith. And in this book, he's trying to describe the effects of sin to a postmodern Euro- European culture. And he's, and he's trying to describe sin to people who don't really get it. And so he's using all of these stories to describe the effects of sin. And here's, here's one of the, the, the vivid pictures that he paints. He says, here you are. You're lying in the bath, and you notice that you're 39 and that the way you're living bears scarcely any resemblance to what you think you've always wanted. Yet you got there by choice, by a long series of choices for things which, at any moment, temporarily outbid the things you say you wanted most. And as the water cools and the, and the light of Saturday morning and summer ripples heartlessly on the bathroom ceiling, you glimpse an unflattering vision of yourself as, being, as a being whose wants make no sense, don't harmonize, whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to. At the very same time, you are equipped, you realize, for farce or even tragedy more than you are for happy endings. You are human, and that's where we live. That's our normal experience. And so this is our normal experience, and many of you, under, you look at your life, and you, hear, you sense the tragedy of what could have been. You see the ashes, and it's normal, but it's not normal, is it? It's not the way things were meant to be. And so the final word he uses here to describe the effects of sin is mourning. You know, we look at our lives, we look at the people around us, and it is sad. There's a heaviness that we see as we look at the broken lives of our children. As we see the, the ravages that sin has brought upon the ones that we love. As we look in, and as, as, we, as we feel the captivity and, and, you know, the chains that bind even our own lives. And the Messiah says, This is the result of the curse. This is the way things are, but they were never supposed to be like this. There's something wrong with the world. It's called sin. And what you see every day as you look around are the effects of the brokenness. But notice Isaiah goes on and he's going to talk about what the Messiah is going to do about the effects of sin. The Messiah's main task is to come into the world and to take away our sin, our sin and brokenness. Uh, The book of Hebrews says he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin. And so the Messiah came into the world to take away our sin. He came to reverse the curse. He came to, uh, to die on the cross for our transgressions. But as he does that, he doesn't just want to simply Uh, forgive us of our sin, or bring pardon for our sin. He also wants to mend the damaging effects of sins. He wants to heal us. And therefore, for those who would receive the Messiah, it says that he would what? He would bind up the brokenhearted. In those days, if you were wounded in some way in your body, they would get a, a cloth and they would bind up the wound. They would, they would bring the flesh together, tightly together. And as, as, as the flesh was brought together, immediately the wound would begin the process of healing. And those of you who are in the medical profession, you, you do this all the time with stitches or you know, little band-aids that bring the flesh together in order to bring healing. But how do you heal a broken heart? And there are many of us, as we said, that walk around with emotional wounds from parents or children or, or, you know, wrongs that have been done to us, wrongs that we've done to other people in our lives. Who can mend a broken heart? Well, the Messiah says he's come to bring emotional healing, to heal the brokenheartedness that comes because of sin, to begin the process of healing in our lives. He's the great physician And he knows how to do it. And if you're suffering today from emotional wounds, anger and resentment because of hurt, struggling with forgiveness, know that the Messiah knows how to bind your broken heart, to heal your emotional wounds. This is one of the reasons why he's come. Notice he's also come, it says, to open the prison doors. To proclaim, to proclaim, it says in verse 2 or verse 1, liberty to the captives. To, so to those of us who are bound by our tragic flaws, for those of us who are doing things that, that, are, that we can't stop, the Messiah is greater than anything that binds your life. And what the Bible says is that on the cross, Jesus Christ did battle with the one who enslaves us. Jesus Christ on the cross, he defeated the power of sin and death and the devil. So that we are now free from our sin that has bound us. Notice it says he's here to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Now what is the year of Jubilee? Well, we've all heard of, uh, there's a Sabbath day. The, the Jewish people, they had a Sabbath day. One day out of seven, you were supposed to stop everything and rest. But there was also a Sabbath year. So one year in seven, you were to stop everything and rest. So on that year, all the slaves were set free. Uh, The land was laid fallow. All the debts were forgiven. But there's also something in the Old Testament called the year of Jubilee. And this was a Sabbath year that came once every seven Sabbaths. So every 50 years, there was the year of Jubilee. And on this year, what would happen is that the land that was taken away from a person because of debt and uh, economic hardship was restored to that person and that person's family. And so what happened in the ancient world is that debt would lead to the loss of land, which would lead to economic poverty. And then there, there would be a cycle that would go on for years and years and years and years to where it was a systemic issue. Aren't you glad that isn't a problem in our world today? But the Jews had a solution to this. There was a year of jubilee. Every 50 years, all the land was restored. You were freed from top to bottom. There was freedom all the way down. And then what the Messiah says is that to those of you who are bound, to those who are enslaved to your worst selves, there will be freedom all the way down. The coming of Jesus, his death and resurrection, what he wants to do to mend the fabric is he wants to give us freedom, liberty. And notice finally he says that he wants to give us beauty for our ashes. And I love this this little phrase here. He wants to give us beauty for ashes. And so to all the, the lost potential and the brokenness of our lives, the shattered ashes... What it says here is he's going to put beauty there instead. So, what does Jesus want to do in your life? He wants to give you beauty in your ashes. And you see Jesus doing this from the very beginning. I mean, you just think of all the lives that you see in the New Testament. You know, I think of the woman who came to Jesus, the prostitute who he had forgiven. And he goes into her life and he, and he takes her out of that situation and out of that bondage and out of those ashes. And he restores her to, to, to her correct social situation. And what does she do? She goes into the room one day and she wipes her, his feet with her tears. Here is a soul who's been mended. Her ashes have been made Beautiful. Or I think of the, the man who was uh, demon-possessed. You remember the man, he was out, he was chained up, and he was in the graveyard, you know, and he was demon-possessed. He was insane, and, and people tried to help him, they couldn't, and so they left him there, chained up in the graveyard. And Jesus goes right in there, and to all the demons that have bound him, he looks at them and says, shut up, let the man go. And the man is healed, and the man is freed, and it says that he was in his right mind. And he goes back into society, fully human. This is what the Messiah wants to do. He wants to put us back in our right minds. He wants to heal us and free us so that we are the people that God intended us to be. You think of all the early disciples. You know, we look at Peter and James, you know, Paul the Apostle as these great pillars of the faith. But their lives were a wreck when Jesus met them. You have know, Paul the Apostle, who was a murderer. You have Matthew, who was a tax collector. These guys were a wreck, and Jesus Christ took them and called them and brought them into his presence, and they walked with him, and slowly they began the process of healing until they were mended and made whole. When I was younger, uh, I was inspired by a book called Harvest. And the church I belonged to, uh, Calvary Chapel, uh, they it was... It was, a, it was a church where there was so much healing of, of those people that were mended. It was way back in the 60s where people were dropping out and they were hippies and messed up. And Chuck Smith, the, the pastor of this church, he would bring these young people in, he would introduce them to Jesus, and their lives would slowly change. And the book Harvest was the story of so many pastors whose lives were made beautiful from ashes. And so there was a Greg Laurie. Greg Laurie was a great evangelist, and before he was a Christian, his mom had you know, over 10 husbands. And he was passed from either father to father to father to father to father. To father. And, and by any estimation, he, his life should have been a wreck. But Greg Laurie was saved and redeemed, and his life was mended. There was Raul Reese, who was a Vietnam vet, who's addicted to alcohol, who's incredibly violent. And one day he's watching television with a gun ready to kill his family when they come home. And he sees a televangelist come on the screen. They're mostly bad, but this one was good. And there in his living room, he got on his knees and he accepted Jesus the Messiah, and his life was mended. There was Mike McIntosh. They found him in a gutter, totally insane, And he was brought into this this home, this uh, restorative home, where he was brought into community and his life was mended. And this is what the Messiah does. The Messiah hasn't come simply to pardon your sin, although he does that. He doesn't come just to forgive you. Yes, he does that. He is in the business of mending the fabric of this broken world. The Messiah makes beauty out of ashes. My mother-in-law is really good at knitting things. She makes hats for our kids, some of you have seen those, and and sometimes when she comes to stay with us, I'll give her a pair of my pants that have been ripped. And when uh, Linda comes, she doesn't just patch up the pants that are ripped, she mends the fabric. And she does it in such a way where the pants actually look better than they did before. And the Messiah doesn't just patch us up. The Messiah mends the fabric. The Messiah brings beauty out of ashes. To the lives that were filled with so much potential. And so much image of God and so much creativity and so much beauty. And they've been broken. The Messiah comes to to bring beauty out of the ashes. Uh, Francis Spooford, the man that I mentioned earlier, the Brit who's describing sin and the man in the bathtub and how <laughs> broken his life was, he mentions here at the end of his book, he says, what the Messiah wants to do is he wants to mend your life. Here's what he says. He says, mended is not the same thing as never broken. We are not being, being promised that it will be as if the bad never happened. It's amnesty that is being offered, not amnesia. Hope and not pretense. The story of your life will be the story of your life permanently. It will still have the kinks and twists and corners that you gave it. The consequences of your actions for you and other people will will roll inexorably on. God can't take those away or your life would not be your own life. You would not be you. The world would not be the world. He can only take away from us, take over for us, the guilt and the fear so that we can start again free in hope so that we are free to try again and fail again, better. He can only overwhelm us with grace. And the way he describes grace is a mending of that which is broken. The same life, the same twists and turns, but somehow God is able to take that which is twisted and make something beautiful out of it. And he will do it for you. So I want to say one more thing. How does, how does the Messiah do this? Well, one of the things you see in the passage is, is God talks about healing the world. The Messiah is going to come to heal. How does he heal the world? Well, one of the things you see in the passage is this beautiful exchange. So beauty for ashes. Joy instead of mourning. This instead of that. And the way the Messiah heals the world is by taking on the sorrow of the world. So there's an exchange that happens when Jesus comes into the world. He takes on our sorrow. He takes on our guilt. He takes on our sin. We give him all of our junk. In exchange for our junk, he gives us his beauty. Some theologians have called this the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus Christ taking all that is ours and simultaneously giving us all that is his. Let me say one more thing about this as we just kind of reflect on this this morning. The healing that the Messiah wants to give us is a process. When Jesus first read this passage in the, in the synagogue, he, he, he only read half of it. He read up to verse 2. He didn't, doesn't finish the passage. It's because when Jesus comes and when he enters into your life, he begins the process that's going to be completed in the future. And what that means is that we live in hope, but it is hope. And what Jesus Christ began in your life, he will bring it to completion. And so often we live in the tension, and there are many of us who still struggle with the effects of sin. You're still battling addiction, you're still battling anger, you're still battling your greed and your lust. But for the Christian, those who have come to the Messiah, there's the promise that one day He will completely heal you. And you move along that road in hope. And so, as we take communion this morning, I want to invite you to hope. I want you to come and, and bring to Jesus Christ all of your ashes and claim the promise that the Messiah is the anointed one who knows how to bring beauty. Out of our ashes, and anticipate the future, that that one day we will all be completely healed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that tells us uh, that the Messiah is a healer, the Messiah is a mender. The Messiah is someone who not only takes away sin, but also is here to heal the effects of our sin. And so we pray that you would heal us this morning, that you would mend us this morning, that you would beautify our ashes this morning. God, for so many of us, sin is way too big and the mess that we are in is way too complex for us to fix. But Lord, we thank you that you have come into this world to fix that which is broken. That includes us. And so we pray that you would do that even as we we take the bread and the cup this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.